Hello, everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am your host, Cooper Wilhelm, coming to you from beautiful, voluntary semi-quarantine here in Brooklyn, New York, where at least the weather is cooperating in these dark pandemic days. I hope you are doing well. It's a big show for you today. Uh, We've got my interview with Francis Young, who's a historian. We're going to be talking about mostly his book on witchcraft as a political crime in medieval and early modern England, but he has done a great deal of vital scholarship into witchcraft, exorcism, monasticism, so we we touch on a wide range of topics in that one, and we also have astrological elections from Frank Civilli, and someone also sent in a listener question about plague magic, so I did a bunch of research, and the thing is plague is a very big topic because plagues have existed for a long time in many forms, and typically people have not wanted to die from them, so you know, there's a lot of magic around that, so I found a bunch of stuff, which I'm basically going to throw at you, and because my understanding is that coronavirus is likely to persist for some time, disappear in the summer, and then come back again in the fall, I'm just going to keep looking for stuff and probably make some segment on Plague Magic a regular part of this program for the rest of the year, so watch out for that. I want to also mention that this weekend I interviewed Matthew Venus, uh, who's a who's a witch an artist up in Massachusetts, and he mentioned some classes that he has coming up that, you know, because his interview isn't going to actually be part of the show until probably two episodes from now, I wanted to get this information out now. Uh, So he's got classes coming up starting on uh, March 20th. He's doing an online class of Foundations of Folk Magic. On March 22nd, he's starting an online class spiritual protection for you and your home and then on april 26 he's starting an online class foundations of witchcraft so be sure to check those out from matthew venus i'll put a link to his website in the show notes so that's the show we got going on i hope you're doing well i'm doing pretty well for being isolated mostly i mean you know it's it's me and the partner in the home so you know not not entirely alone and it's a good opportunity to go up on the roof so that's nice anyway here is frank civilli with some astrological elections for us hey everyone i'm frank civilli i'm an astrologer and a poet based out of queens new york and i'm here to give you a read on the stars in the weeks ahead some housekeeping before i begin i do hellenistic and archetypal astrology i use whole sign houses and i use the tropical zodiac And all my elections today will be from New York, New York, and in Eastern Time. Alright, so let's take a look at a few elections. First, I want to look at Saturn's ingress into Aquarius. That's going to be on Sunday, March 22nd, 2020. And the specific chart that I'm looking at is for 1.10 p.m. Eastern with Cancer Ascendant. We have Saturn in Aquarius in the 8th, and the Moon in Pisces in the 9th. I like that the Cancer Ascendant is trying the moon here. It smooths over any operations you might have planned and generally lubricates the transition from the coarse Saturn and Cap that we've been living with the past two and a half years into cold Aquarius. I think this ingress is important because it actually helps mitigate the conditions of the other placements in Capricorn right now. That's because Saturn himself will be in better condition away from those planets, no longer co-present with them in Capricorn. I see this day as about honoring Saturn and the battles you've been through during his tenure in Capricorn. Honor what you've amassed and what you've lost, and be prepared for the journey ahead. 
This is just a taste of Saturn's ingress into Aquarius. He's going to go retrograde again on May 10th and then slip into muddy Capricorn on July 2nd. However you choose to work this day, you might think about how to free yourself from the morass we've been entangled in. Saturn is moving from Cardinal Capricorn to fixed Aquarius. This is a good time to think of endurance. What do you need to slough off? What can you free yourself of now that will help to better sustain you in the long term? Saturn revels in sacrifice, so give him what he wants. Under Aquarius, Saturn teaches us that by freeing up or letting go, we do better than to hoard or to cling. This is just the first taste of what's to come, and Saturn is in shadow, so don't feel like you need to get all the work done right now. Fumigate in preparation for the funeral rites and see what turns up. Next, I want to take a look at the new moon in Aries on Tuesday, March 24th, 2020. The lunation is going to be exact at about 5.30 a.m. Eastern, but the chart I've pulled is for 6.51 a.m. Eastern, which is sunrise. We have Aries Ascendant, the moon and sun also in Aries in the first, and because it's sunrise, 6.51 a.m. begins the hour of Mars. This is an election for destruction. Hide your work in the dark of the moon. Tenth house Capricorn is square the Ascendant, but only the south node and the MC come close to exact. So this is a good time to bring down someone or something that's hurt you in work prospects, goals that would grant you renown, or obstacles to your success. Think of that which has tried to stand in your way. This is a good time for some explosive blockbusting work to destroy impediments from your past that hold you back from achieving the future you want. Fire would work well here incorporated into any work you do, but don't get burned and do be careful not to burn down anything valuable in the process. And that's all I've got for you this week. So as always, be safe. Reach out to me for readings on Instagram where I'm at anti.bishop. Always happy to chat astrological magic or tarot or give further insight into my elections. And until next time, be well. Thank you so much to Frank for those astrological elections. Of course, if you have any questions for him or want to reach out, he's available on Instagram at anti.bishop. Up next, we have my chat with Francis Young. Francis Young is a UK-based historian and folklore specializing in the history of religion and supernatural belief. He's the author of 14 books, and his interests include monasticism, saints, history of magic and ritual, especially exorcism, and early modern Catholicism, very belief, late medieval Ireland, and the history of East Anglia. Uh, he's also a professional indexer, editor, and translator specializing in medieval and early modern Latin. And we had a really nice chat, mostly about his new book, um, New-ish. It just came out in paperback. It's been around for a bit. Uh, Magic as a Political Crime in Medieval and Early Modern England. Uh, and I hope you enjoy it. Here's my talk with Francis Young. Thank you again for being on. You have produced a wide array of just vital scholarship on some really, really important and diverse, a diverse set of topics. But I wanted to focus, if we could, on your book, Magic as a Political Crime in Medieval and Early Modern England, which just recently came out in paperback. Congratulations. Thank you. During this time period, to what extent were accusations of treasonous magic used out of a genuine concern for the material effects of magic against members of the monarchy or the government? And to what extent were they sort of thrown in as a largely sort of political gesture of, of demonizing, say, one's opponents or making another charge seem more grave? 
That's a really interesting question, and I think it, it varies a great deal. The first case that I discuss in the book, which is from the 1320, where a man called John of Nottingham is accused of magically attacking Edward II and one of his favourites, I think it's quite clear that the fear on the part of the king and his ministers is genuine. And there you've got a situation where the favourite actually writes to the Pope, John XXII, and begs for some sort of holy protection from the Pope because he believes he's under attack from sorcerers. So I think that there are cases like that. And again, uh, in 1578, there's a notorious case when the Privy Council uncovers this apparent conspiracy to try and assassinate Queen Elizabeth using wax images with pins stuck in them. And the fear is palpable. You know, it's real. John Dee is drafted in to try and perform counter magic. But there are a lot of other cases where I think the second suggestion that you've made there would apply. The case of Lord Hungerford in 1540. Um, Lord Hungerford has failed to get Henry VIII a suitable bride. Henry doesn't like Anne of Cleves and he's out for blood. And one of the things he does is to heap up these accusations against Hungerford, one of which is sodomy and another of them is necromancy, sorcery. And I think that in this case, it really is just something that has been stuck on there as a way of discrediting this man. And sorcery is an accusation that has a special stickiness to it. It's something which is such a, an unnatural crime in the thinking of that time that once you've said it, it's very hard then to get rid of the dirt. And that person is tainted for life. And actually, bringing up Hungerford, so his accusation comes just four years after an abbot by the name of William Love, which uh, you talk about in the book, is accused of a number of crimes. But essentially, one of them is, I, I think, giving a woman an abortion via beneficium. Uh, or sort of magical poisons. To what extent were these these witchcraft allegations linked to things like the control of reproduction? Because you have sort of, you know, abortion and then four years later, uh, sort of, I think it was treason by buggery, I think is the phrase that they used yeah. with Hungerford. So is there often this link to a kind of state control over reproduction or something like that? Uh, yes, I think there is a link uh, with that. I think that it's to do with the idea of the natural and the unnatural. And sorcery is thought of as an unnatural crime. Homosexuality in the theology of the time is thought of as unnatural. And likewise, any any kind of uh, interference with the reproductive process is thought of in that way. So, yes, something else that we find in the 1560s, particularly, there is an obsession on the part of the authorities with accusing women who tried to help other women in pregnancy by magical means, accusing them of witchcraft. For example, women who made magical girdles that were supposed to reduce pain in childbirth are routinely presented for witchcraft before the church courts. It's, it's almost as though there is a, a strong link between witchcraft and reproduction, but also I think it speaks to I think the well-established idea that witchcraft accusations are misogynistic, that they are targeted against women primarily though not solely and any attempt to influence reproductive processes in a way that doesn't favor a patriarchal society is something that could attract you a witchcraft accusation certainly looking at this this sort of question of the of the magical girdle as being sort of central in like one of those sorts of cases like what are we when we were talking about these sort of treasonous accusations of witchcraft 
or accusations of treasonous witchcraft, what are the methodologies that are being uh, suggested as being used? So we have the, the wax effigy with um, that case against, uh, or that case involving Queen Elizabeth and John Dee. But what what are the sort of standard claims being made about how this witchcraft is supposedly being affected? Yes, the principal one um, is what I would describe as effigy magic. So the idea that a, a wax or lead effigy of someone is being made and sympathetic magic is being used to, to somehow assimilate that effigy to the person. And that might be by dressing it in clothes that resemble the person. So when the wax effigy is found in 1578 in a barn in Islington, it's dressed in clothes that make it look like the Queen. And there's two other effigies there that look like Lord Burley and the Earl of Leicester. Um, and so, yes, they're, they're essentially dressed up dolls. Another way would be to obtain uh, hair or fingernails or some sort of bodily matter from that person and insert it into the image. Or an even simpler way would simply be to carve that person's name on the image. And this is something that we have going all the way back to Babylon and, and, and you know, right the way back to uh, the earliest Near Eastern civilizations. It's, it's very deeply rooted in, in, in human culture. Right. Uh, so that's one approach. The other major accusation that keeps cropping up is the idea of astrological prediction. So astrological prediction in and of itself in the Middle Ages and the early modern period is not regarded as particularly bad. The church is a bit equivocal about it. Sometimes it's viewed as suspect. Other times it's viewed as perfectly legitimate. But there are certain kinds of astrological prognostication that are always forbidden. And one of those is to inquire about the death of the king and so if you start casting the king's horoscope well any horoscope is going to contain a prediction about somebody's ultimate death uh, so the very act of casting the king's horoscope is, is considered forbidden and what you often come across in this period is a situation where someone has been casting the horoscope and that may well be true that they have done that but then an another accusation is made against them that in order to get the information they needed for that horoscope, they summoned a demon. Uh, so that would be necromancy, the, the use of ritual magic to raise a demon who predicts the future. There's very little evidence that anybody ever actually did this. So I think that what you've got here is people having a rather negative view of astrology and, and assuming that astrologers can't possibly get the information that they claim to get just from looking at the stars. It must be that they're also summoning demons to get this information. Um, and so, yes, this, there's a general suspicion of astrologers as possibly having the kind of knowledge that you'd need to summon a demon. There was also typically, my understanding is, a link between effigy magic and also sort of astrological magic as well at this time, right? Or is that... Yes, they, they are linked. They are linked. I think that effigy magic can be done without any kind of astrological element to it. It's pretty sort of fundamental to the very nature of magic itself. It's something that we find across societies. And you know, anthropologists will tell you that effigy magic is pretty much universal right. but within western europe at that time it was very strongly linked with astrology you're quite right so you would um have in in some of the grimoires you've got instructions about how you should make your image at a particular time um and so john of nottingham for example in the 1320s he is accused of making the image in an appropriate astrological hour um, on a particular day so that it causes the maximum harm to the people that he's trying to kill. So yes, it, the, two, the two become conflated in that sense. And to what extent are the people who are, getting make, who are having these accusations leveled against them being found to possess things like grimoires or any kind of, of sort of 
magical text in, in terms of the evidence that they are engaging in these acts? Yes, this is something that comes up in, in the evidence. Um, so, for example, in the reign of Richard II, uh, one of the justicias is found to be in possession at his execution of um, magical texts on his body. Possibly the reason that he had those was to try and protect himself from pain in execution. This is something that we find as late as the 1680s when the Duke of Monmouth is executed um, in 1685. He has these magical incantations on his person, which are supposed to protect you from torture, effectively, that you will die swiftly at the hands of the executioner. But the way that it's interpreted by his enemies, of course, is that you know these are threatening magical incantations against the life of the king. So, yes, there, 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 are, there are certainly cases like this. Uh, in the 1440s, when you have a couple of sorcerers who have been employed by um, the, the, the Duchess of, of Gloucester, Eleanor Cobham, uh, they are uh, 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 executed along with their instruments of necromancy, which are um, not described in particular detail, but they seem to involve some sort of images, um, astrological talismans of some kind, but also books. The trouble is, the, the, the problem that the historian always has with this kind of material, we have chroniclers who write sketchy descriptions of executions and destruction of magical paraphernalia in books but of course they've been destroyed so we don't know what they were we only have these sketchy descriptions so one of the things that i try to do in the book is to look at what we do have surviving books that have survived and to see if there's anything in there that remotely resembles the kind of things that the chroniclers are describing and so yeah what, I, what i'm really interested in is what was the actual practice, the real practice that lay behind these accusations. And often it was very different from what these people were being accused of doing by the government. So what is perhaps an example of something that seems to differ very dramatically from these accusations? Well, there's, there's a spell that occurs in a few grimoires called the Trojan Revenge. And it's a, a, a spell which, um, yes, as its name suggests, is sort of modelled on the idea of the revenge of the Trojans, who, of course, are, are defeated by the Greeks, but ever thereafter have a, a sort of vendetta against the Greeks. And the way that that was understood in the history of the time was that the Romans were, in some sense, the symbolic successors of the Trojans, who then take over Greece. And so the revenge of Troy becomes a, a sort of symbol of revenge best served cold, if you like, that yeah. uh, if somebody does you over, then you will ultimately have your victory over them, even if it doesn't happen immediately. And it's essentially a piece of effigy magic that involves the construction of, a, 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 of an image that you then defile in various ways by burying it in, in excrement and um, twisting it this way and that and writing various names on it. But what's striking about the Revenge of Troy is that it doesn't seem to be intended to kill your victim, uh, at least not in the forms that I've encountered it. Now, that may be because the books that contained even darker magic have all been burnt. That's possible. Um, but it may well be that actually ritual magic is a bit more subtle than that. It's, it's not about killing people. It's about making them suffer and getting your own way. The impression that I get from the grimoires is that they are essentially texts of manipulation. They're not so much texts of, of destruction. And one of the interesting things about some versions of this spell is that they actually give you a way to stop the pain that you're causing to this person. So if, for example, you dig up your effigy 
and you bathe it in fresh milk, for example, that will ritually restore the purity of the image and the person will come back to health. Which is interesting that this sort of um, uh, reset option is given in these spells. It suggests that the, the magicians who are using this are not, they're not amoral people. They, they do have some sort of desire to have a way back. But at the same time, they're willing to use the means that they believe they have at their disposal. That's really interesting. So to what extent were these sort of... Because I mean, like, when we have our our first statute from Parliament uh, in 1351 that defines treason, it it sort of just talks about the idea of, like, having any kind of conspiratorial desire against the monarch or or various uh, figures close to him or her, but... Is there a strong sense that these these accusations of treason were used a lot in situations where they felt that the sorcerer, etc., was using magic specifically to manipulate political outcomes? Yes. The, well, the, the words that are used in the statute of 1351 talk about compassing and imagining the death of the king. And it, it's interesting that although there's no explicit mention there of magic, the word compasse in Norman French would be the word you would use for drawing an astrological figure with literally with compasses. So uh, compasse means to to walk out, to walk around or to to draw a figure, essentially. And I, I wonder whether it's more than just accident that the same word is being used in the statute as the word that we would use to draw out an astrological figure. And likewise, imaginez in Norman French it has the sense that we have in English to imagine, to picture something in your mind, but it also has the sense to make an image. So we could therefore have a double meaning there, which evokes this idea of, of, of making, a, making a, an image. And the way that the, the statute is, is formed, and that, that statute, by the way, is still in force in England today, is that it's very um, it's very easy to apply because you don't have to prove that what someone has done has brought about any harm to the king. All you have to prove is that the person thought about and imagined in their head that the king died as a result of their actions. So it doesn't require you to believe that magic works. It just requires you to believe that to have the magical intention to harm the monarch is in and of itself a crime. Though there are some specific cases where I think there were attempts to link negative effects in the monarch to an actual magical act. I'm like uh, Richard II comes to mind, uh, Queen Elizabeth comes to mind. Were these sort of the exceptions or was it sort of thought that at any point, any ailment that a monarch or important figure might have might actually be the result of some kind of malicious magical act it depends upon the level of paranoia that applies within the particular reign that we're talking about give you an example of someone who was quite sanguine about this sort of stuff henry the seventh a very practical man He, he doesn't seem to have taken this kind of thing seriously at all various magical plots are hatched against him and he's so chilled about this that he actually pardons these people and and he doesn't seem to believe in this kind of thing. Whereas, as you say, Richard II, a very paranoid monarch, um, someone who believes in his own supernatural power, but also believes that others are plotting against him. Elizabeth I, uh, we don't really know to what extent she personally was afraid 
but her counsellors certainly do seem to have been very afraid, uh, at least on on one occasion. And yeah, Lester seems to have been the the, the figure who who drove all this and turned it into a, a sort of small scale witch hunt. These events in 1578. Um, so it depends on the king. Um, James I is another interesting example, a king who is actually obsessed in many ways with witchcraft, but his obsession with witchcraft has an unlikely consequence that he actually believes himself to be immune from it because he's so learned. Um, he believes that he knows so much about witchcraft that it can't possibly touch him uh, and because he is God's anointed and he's the king. So his inflated opinion of himself actually makes him less worried about these uh, 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 sort of threats. So yeah, it varies very much depending on which king we're talking about. Mm. And when we talk about someone like, say, Lester, or um, say the accusations around Richard II, this is another situation where, like, how much of this? Because there's a there seems to be like this very strong link between changing attitudes towards Catholicism in England and, and ideas around magic and the occult. So, how much would say Lester's witch hunts would those be sort of a genuine terror or being sort of cynically deployed? Would you say? in a kind of depression of, of Catholics at the time. I think that Leicester did attempt to bring in to England confessional persecution of Catholics for sorcery. But I think he ultimately failed in that. This is something that we do find in other countries, but in England, in Scotland would be a, a good example. But in England, it never really takes off um, this idea that Catholics are witches and, and, and should be persecuted as such. Um, yes, he tries it, but the witch hunt is pretty small. Um, so you're talking you know, 30 or 40 people uh, end up being arraigned and, and tried as a result of this, this mini witch hunt. Generally speaking, in England, with the, the exception of this one period in the 1640s when Matthew Hopkins is roaming around East Anglia, are, the witch hunts in England are on a very small scale. They are, they are very small fry compared to what you've got going on in Germany in the 15th century. I mean, you've got hundreds of thousands of people being uh, uh, burned. Um, Scotland as well, notorious for its witch hunting, goes on right into the 18th century. But England, yeah, it never really takes off. Why do you think that is? I think it's to do with the fact that witchcraft in England is a very depoliticized crime compared to other countries. That's one reason why nobody had actually written a book about the subject before I did. I think it's because witchcraft in England quite quickly, certainly from the 1560s onwards, becomes seen as a, as a crime that is committed by powerless old women in villages. It's something which is a, a nasty crime for which people who commit it are deserving of death. But it is something which is isolated from the broader political picture. Um, it, it's, a, it's a local crime. Whereas I think in other countries, in Scotland, uh, for example, witchcraft is seen as a threat to the state. And you, and you see that very clearly in what happens in 1589 when um, James VI of Scotland, as he, was, as he was then, later he becomes King of England as James I, James uh, becomes convinced that there's this group of witches who have gathered at North Berwick and they've held this ritual in which they've uh, baptised a cat in his name and then drowned the cat in the sea and the devil himself has appeared among them and all this kind of stuff. It, 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 it's very much more like the kind of demonology that we see on the continent. In England, there isn't very much sophisticated demonological thinking about witchcraft ever. There are attempts by individual theologians to try and introduce this stuff 
It never takes. Uh, people just want to think of witches as that funny looking old woman who lives in the cottage at the edge of the village. It, 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 it's not something which ever becomes inflated into a vast demonic conspiracy, with the possible exception of the Civil War era, when the, the nation is going through this kind of collective psychosis, as you'd expect at a, a time of civil war. But with the exception of those mad years, it never really has much impact. So outside of treason or accusations involving treason, witchcraft is primarily prosecuted by ecclesiastical courts, right? It depends. So the, 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 the statutes regarding witchcraft say that any witchcraft which involves an attempt to harm or kill another person has to be tried in the secular courts under that statute. Mm. But witchcraft might be used for something else. So if I, if I were trying to do love magic or trying to do witchcraft around pregnancy to try and ease somebody's pain in childbirth or, or supernatural healing, all of that stuff is not covered by the statute, but is all but is still covered by the ecclesiastical courts. So, yes, I mean, I think one of the misconceptions about this period, some people think, oh, um, witches are always brought before the secular courts. But no, they are also brought before the church courts, but for slightly different kinds of witchcraft. So, yes, it, it's tried in both, but for different reasons. And what kind of punishments could a, an ecclesiastical court actually levy against someone? The worst that it could do would be public penance. So effectively, you'd be forced to stand in the church or outside the church wearing a big placard saying, I am a witch. Um, and your parishioners would get to shout at you and possibly throw things at you. But but there was no the church courts did not have the ability to impose uh, physical Corporal, corporal or capital punishment, except in the case of heresy. Um, and witchcraft was not considered to be heresy. It was considered to be a superstitious deviation from, from Christian faith. So, it, yeah, it was definitely preferable to be tried in a church court compared to being tried under the statute in a secular court. Absolutely. And in the book, you write about um, an incident where a Dominican friar was um, essentially saved by the Archbishop of Canterbury from facing a secular court and brought, I think, into an ecclesiastical court thereafter. Was there was there a great deal of sort of conflict between these two court systems or are they often working in tandem? Uh, yes, there was conflict, especially in the Middle Ages when it came to the clergy. Um, and yes, the example that you give is quite typical, that clergy would be indicted under a statute, but then some senior churchman would step in and say, oh, you know, he's a clergyman. We can't possibly try him in a secular court. Let's try him in a church court instead. But perhaps the most egregious example is uh, Eleanor Cobham, Duchess of Gloucester. She's accused of witchcraft. Her accomplices are, are, are executed, but she manages just in time to touch the great big bronze door knocker of Westminster Abbey. And that means that she can claim sanctuary. And as soon as she's claimed sanctuary, she's under the protection of the church, so can only be tried in a church court which was a very canny move on her part because yeah. had she not gone into hiding in the church she would have been tried under the statute and could well have been executed so she is effectively then condemned to house arrest for the rest of her life and has to spend her time in various castles but yeah she got off lightly compared to what could have happened and actually speaking of the the clergy coming under fire here how like when we when we talk about the people who are accused of using witchcraft in a treasonous way. For the most part, are we talking about clergy who are doing magic or are we talking about, say, the local cunning woman or are we talking about perhaps uh, aristocrats who have a dabbling 
in these sorts of things? Like who who tends to get these accusations leveled against them? Well, if you're talking about political accusations, political accusations are overwhelmingly aimed against the aristocracy and their chaplains. Um, so clerics who are employed by the aristocracy. In terms of witchcraft accusations, generally, the vast majority of all witchcraft accusations are against completely unlearned people with with no knowledge of anything who are probably illiterate. So yes, in in that sense, political magic is something which is totally different from your average English witchcraft accusation. The extent to which the aristocracy themselves were dabbling seems to be quite limited. Generally speaking, they will employ others to do their magical business for them. Not that that in any way exonerated them in the eyes of the crown. They, they were considered equally guilty. But an individual like Eleanor Cobham, there's no evidence that she herself was involved directly in any of these magical conjurations, even though Shakespeare, in his rendering of the story, portrays her as being present at the, at the conjuration. But um, yes, it's largely clerics who have the knowledge of Latin, the ability to read, the knowledge of astrology, the knowledge of uh, magical practices, who are the ones who are employed to do this kind of thing. When the monasteries are dissolved under um, King Henry VIII, I believe? Yes. So what is that sort of having a bunch of clerics basically sort of thrust out into the wider society? What does this do to conceptions of witchcraft and magic at that time? Yeah, this is something that I've looked in, into quite a lot. And um, the, the evidence is a bit uh, equivocal. But my suspicion is, and there's some evidence to back this up, that these these men and possibly also women nuns who are thrust out into the world, uh, some of them decide to make their living via magical means and effectively become cunning men and cunning women. And it makes sense because they have learning, they have this this desirable commodity at the time when literacy was quite limited, um, and they had access to these extraordinary libraries many of which we know contained magical texts, even though they probably shouldn't have done. Uh, some monasteries were refuges for people who were interested in magic. And um, yeah, some of these manuscripts may well have made their way out of monasteries. Now, I, I don't have any specific examples of manuscripts that we know got out that way. But in the manuscripts that were produced after the dissolution, we do find signs that some of them might have been created by ex-monks. So yeah, um, I, I think that it is something that had an effect. And I think it brought learned magic into the popular sphere. So when we look at how magic is transformed in the 16th and 17th centuries, the distinction between popular magic and learned magic is elided to the point where people are starting to write down and do conjurations that are very like the, the, the conjurations of medieval learned clerical magic but they're doing them in English. They're translating them into English. They're adapting them so that they can be done by lay people, so that the person doing it doesn't have to be a priest. They're removing elements that are Catholic, uh, like the requirement that somebody has to say mass. And so effectively, you've got a, a, a tradition that is simultaneously very conservative. Um, so the idea that, you know, magic doesn't change that much between the Middle Ages and the early modern period. But in other ways, it's quite um, radical because it's it's um, doing things in a totally different way, doing it in the vernacular, doing it in English, doing it in such a way that it doesn't require a priest. So we have this like huge democratization of magic at this time. And this is also, I think, a point that you describe in the book when there is an uptick during the, the sort of Tudor era of paranoia about magical treason 
are these things i mean of course the the, the dissolution of the monasteries are coming from say king henry the eighth but is there a sort of feedback loop going on with this with suddenly all this magic just sort of running out into the world and this increased fear at the top of it uh, yes i i think that what I, the way I would characterize this is that in the middle of the 16th century, a reformation takes place in religion, but there is also a reformation in magic, or at least not in magic itself, but in the way that people think about magic. And when we look at the way that people thought about magic before the reformation, it was as something which required skill. It was essentially a, a, a an outgrowth of learning. Um, so most of the people who were brought before the, the courts for magic, they are either people who are learned clerics who've been conjuring demons, who are seen as a significant threat because that's a very bad thing to do, or they are people who are totally unlearned and are, are not seen as a threat at all and are given a ticking off for vain superstition. What happens after the Reformation, or in this parallel Reformation, I actually see it as a parallel development rather than a result necessarily of the Protestant Reformation, we have this stripped down view of witchcraft as essentially something which is supernatural but doesn't require any kind of skill. So it's the idea that you, you make a pact with the devil and that's it. Then the devil will give you this power just to look at somebody and you'll strike them sick or strike them dead. It's the idea that somebody can acquire this ability to ill wish and to curse people and in a way it's totally different from the idea of magic that that we're used to in the middle ages which is something that you actually have to work quite hard to become a good magician whereas witchcraft in the early modern period is unskilled so is it is it this kind of shift in how magic is understood that leads to the eventual decline in accusations of magic being used as a political crime or is it simply the rise of, of the sort of disenchantment that comes with the the scientific revolution, or what 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 sort of brings this about? Yes, I think it is that it's the it's the former. The idea of witchcraft becomes so depoliticized and so far removed from great affairs of state that it's something that no one would think that a, a witch could in any way threaten the monarch. And I think also that witchcraft and magic become conflated together. So. The old ideas about clerical magic and people abusing the sacraments or uh, conjuring demons uh, or using astrology, all that sort of stuff disappears and all that's left is witchcraft in many ways. And so, yes, I, I think it's that rather, rather than the Enlightenment. Although, of course, once the Enlightenment arrives, once this changed view of the natural world appears, then, yeah, magical explanations become, you know, in and of themselves um, less plausible to many people. Where does someone like... John D fall into all this where you have someone who is engaging in essentially things that might in other contexts be forbidden but is doing it at the behest of the state yes it is it is strange um that that D is permitted uh to engage in magic um uh, even though you know the very very idea of doing magic is, is 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 frowned upon by by those who employed him, and I think that this is an ambiguity that we do find, particularly with regard to attitudes to alchemy. Um, alchemy is prohibited by statute, but at the same time, the government is obsessed with employing alchemists and even kidnapping alchemists and forcing them to work for the government because of this hope that somehow that they'll be able to transmute uh, a base metal into gold and produce unlimited wealth for the treasury. And I think that uh, that's analogous, really, to, to Dee's situation, that Dee has something that the government needs, and that is uh, an ability to protect the monarch 
by magical means. Yeah, so um, it's a paradox, but I think it's what you'd expect, really, from an early modern government that is quite mercenary and willing to do what, what what's necessary, really. And actually, elsewhere, you've written about an incident in which I believe you refer to as Edward Kelly's Danish treasure hoax. Yes. Uh, can you can you describe what the nature of that hoax was for a moment? Yes, um, th- this is something which happens in uh, uh, 1584 um, when uh, Edward Kelly decides to pull a hoax on on John Dee by claiming to have discovered um, some some treasure that was buried by. Danes many centuries earlier, along with a scroll that that reveals essentially what what the history of this was, and our chemical powder, the philosopher's stone, the powder of projection, as he describes it, and this fuels this ongoing obsession of these in, in with buried treasure. And the article really is about those events and what they led to, but also it's it it looks at how hoaxes in archaeology can actually be quite helpful because they reveal the limits of what we can imagine. So I compare what what happened in the 16th century with later examples of, of hoaxes like the Piltdown Man hoax in the early 20th century when someone who's still unknown creates this hominid specimen that's supposedly an early an early form of, of, of human native to the British Isles. And uh, of course, it's all completely fabricated. But a lot of prominent paleontologists fall for it in the same way that, that Dee falls for it, despite being the most learned man in England. I think there's very little doubt that Dee was the most learned man in England at the time, and yet he was fooled. And we see this time and time again, like the Hitler diaries would be another example that very learned historians and, and, and archaeologists get fooled by things. And it's almost as though we need these tricksters like Edward Kelly to perpetrate hoaxes a bit like, you know, we need um, hackers to try and penetrate firewalls to test their limits. And I, I think that hoaxes test the resilience of, of, of our ideas about the past. That's really lovely. But but speaking of, of this particular hoax a little bit more, what were the results of this, of D having the, the wool pulled over his eyes, especially in this context where there is presumably a great deal of pressure coming upon him from above to find an alchemical source of gold. Yes, um, there is pressure, um, but I think that it's mainly Dee's personal obsession, um, his own belief that he can become wealthy by magical means. And um, he actually ends up, of course, spending more money trying to find this treasure and traveling around the country trying to follow clues uh, than he has. Um, and he ends he ends up dying in poverty. Kelly, on the other hand, uh, ends up going to Bohemia. They both go to Bohemia, but Kelly stays behind. And Kelly becomes famous there because he claims to have the powder of projection, the Philosopher's Stone, and is reputed to genuinely be able to transmute base metal into gold. But eventually he's uh, imprisoned in a castle and dies whilst trying to escape. Although there are those who still claim that Kelly never actually did die and faked his own death and is still living happily somewhere in Prague. Um, given that he acquired the immortality of the alchemist. But uh, uh, yes, it's almost a, it's a tragic story because Dee ends up the worst, worst off for it because Dee was such a, a terribly honest man, some would say deluded, whereas Kelly was a con man and Dee never quite recognised this and was not able to accept that he'd been deceived because he wasn't able to square that with his his view of the world. As a historian, what sort of considerations do you take when you're looking at at historical records of things like cunning men, alchemists, magicians, to sort of filter through people like Dee who are very genuinely committed to this worldview and people like Kelly who are 
perhaps to some extent committed to it, but also trying to make a dollar through a bit of a bit of confidence. Yes, I, I think when you read the grimoires, which is the, the, the key source, really, for what the magicians thought of themselves, as opposed to the judicial records, which are the key source of, of what other people thought of the magicians, I don't think anyone would have gone to the trouble of writing a grimoire unless they believed that some of this stuff could work. But on the other hand, there is a deep cynicism there and an attempt to make money. And I think that what you're looking at is a very mixed collection of motives. Magicians really did believe in their own powers, but they also knew that they could inflate their own powers when talking to clients. So I think you've got a, a, a situation there a bit like, I, I suppose, a bit like some, some people who claim to be psychic today, many of whom I think probably do believe that they're psychic, but they still put on a show in which they will deliberately set out to trick people, which might seem strange to, to the more rationally minded. We, we, we sort of tend to assume that people are either frauds or they're, or they're honest. But the people who live in the shadows, these, uh, these magicians, they, they both believe their own story and also elaborate a much larger story that they know that is not true but that they're willing to sell to other people. So I think it, it, it's not as simple as simply asking, yeah, were they frauds or, or were they real? It's, it's, a, yeah, it's a complex psychology. And actually, you bring up an interesting, an interesting consideration. The passing of the manuscripts of grimoires at this time, how much of that is like a commercial activity and how much of that is just something that one would seek to acquire through the auspices of some kind of pure scholarship, I guess, is a way of framing the the alternative here. Like, but how much of, of a commercial enterprise are grimoires during this period? They're certainly not a, a large scale commercial enterprise because no nobody can at this time produce grimoires on a large scale. You can't print them because they're a, a banned category of book. You can't be caught writing them. So the idea that you would attempt to you know, have a little cottage industry going where you've got lots of scribes doing it. It just wouldn't be feasible. It would be too dangerous to do that. But there are individual cases where you find someone who um, a magician has attempted to sell a book of magic to some unsuspecting client uh, for some hugely inflated sum and said, you know, with this book, you will be able to find treasure. Therefore, it's worth your investment. So, yes, it could be commercial. But I think perhaps commercial might be the wrong word because that would imply some sort of manufacturer on scale that in most cases, the ones that I've looked at, I would say that they were probably produced for a disciple. So they were produced for the personal reference of the magician, but they're also produced for someone who then carries on as, as the uh, apprentice, if you like. And that might be a member of their family or, so, or somebody or, you know, somebody who had been taught up how to do it. You talked about the, the changes that are happening in magic because of the Protestant Reformation, but in watching, in looking at sort of various iterations or versions of something like, say, the Trojan uh, Revenge, are you seeing massive shifts in how magic, the same spell perhaps, might be conceived of or or rendered over, over time? Or are you seeing, for the most part, a fairly consistent reproduction outside of, say, these massive changes from the Reformation, which might be an insane question that I'm saying it out loud. You know, huge changes, but also on the small scale. Are you seeing these changes reflected, maybe, is a way of phrasing that? Um, yeah, it, it's a picture of a strange combination of continuity and change, because on the one hand, the tradition is quite conservative. I think that the basic forms 
are unchanged. And when you look at popular magic, lots of Catholic stuff lingers, you know, well into the 19th century, well into the 19th century. People are still, you know, writing Catholic charms on beams in their houses to protect against fire and things like that. So in that sense, there's great continuity. However, there are changes that, 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 that I've mentioned, such as the change to the vernacular, the, the move away from the idea that you have to be a priest or you have to be a cleric in order to do magic. Sometimes you'll get the removal of overt references to the Virgin Mary and things that you know, you'd very much associate with Catholicism. Other than that, though, not a huge amount of, of, of change. There isn't very much innovation in the tradition. And it's not really until the 18th century that we see genuine innovation and change in the magical tradition. It, rem it remains very much looking back to the past, looking back to the Middle Ages. So I, I would see the um, I'd see the Reformation as a, a watershed in the way that other people looked at magicians, but not necessarily a watershed in the way that magicians looked at themselves. And and sort of stepping back from this book in particular, because you've also you've written extensively about exorcism. You've written you've done folkloric studies of um, Suffolk and I believe Petersburg. What what attracts you to this area? of study in history? What is the sort of the big draw to you for magic? I suppose I'm interested in uh, belief. Um, I'm interested in religious belief, but also the fringes of religious belief or those beliefs that some people might not necessarily consider to be conventionally religious, but, but nevertheless have a kind of parasitic coexistence with religious belief. And yes, the, the, the frontiers of belief, the frontiers of, of what was considered acceptable. And I think magic fascinates me because it's, it's deeply embedded in religious ways of thinking. But at the same time, it's very much a technology. It's, it's a, a supernatural technology, as, as Richard Kiefer called it. And that intrigues me because that, has, that, that has a, is a pre-echo almost of the Baconian thinking that, that comes much later. Um, and the idea that the entire world can be technologized that we find later in the in the Enlightenment and in the 19th century. So so magic sort of looks back to the past because it's a deeply spiritual way of looking at the world in one way. But it also very much looks to the future because it's it got this technological twist to it. So it's kind of Janus faced uh, belief system, if it can be called a belief system, but also the perennial nature of magic. It's something which it never quite goes away. It's always there. It, it seems to be deeply fundamental to human nature that we we need ritual we need magical ways of thinking i just find it fascinating because it can't quite ever be understood i never feel that i've ever quite got to the bottom of anything which may seem a strange reason to be interested in something but but i i, I suppose i like studying things that are ultimately unfathomable speaking actually of the sort of technological nature of magic and actually you know the timing of this book we're, we're in a time when I think a lot of people are are trying to conceive of politics in a new way, especially even looking at, say, like the technological aspects of how politics are conducted in Western democracies. What do you feel connects the sort of ideas about magic and particularly magic's place in political machinations during the medieval and early modern period to how people are approaching politics today or even how people are approaching magic in politics today? Because, I mean, you know, uh, there are a number of writers now coming out talking about the idea of the political as a kind of magic. Yes, I think the political has been a kind of magic for a very long time. This is something which we see in the language that's used around politics. People talk about the dark arts of, of, of politics. 
And that's metaphor, but it could also be taken as something more than metaphor, perhaps, because politics is ultimately a game of smoke and mirrors, much like magic. It is to quite a large extent a a con. Um, You know, many of the things that politicians speak about are not real, but they have a power of invocation over people's minds. And I think that, yes, I, I suppose that where I see our political culture moving in a in a disturbing direction is that there are ideas of of what um what George Orwell called thought crime the certain things that it's not permissible to think that that is very like the kind of laws that you see in the middle ages in the early modern period against political magic because whether or not political magic worked or whether they even thought the political magic worked ultimately the condemnation of political magic is about condemning people having thoughts against the government. And increasingly, as, as we seem to move into these more authoritarian regimes, even in the West, the idea of people having thoughts against the government, let alone speaking up against the government, is something which um, seems to be coming back into into vogue as a crime. That's curious. It's actually, it's interesting, because it's reminding me of something you talk about in the book a little bit, the uh, Holy Maid of Kent. Yes, for, for the folks who are listening, could you give a, a brief a brief description of the Holy Maid of Kent and the effect that she had on the uh, subsequent, I think, uh, revision of the treason statute? Uh, yes, that's right. Um, well, she she is a nun from Kent, and she uh, is called Elizabeth Barton, and she starts prophesying against Henry VIII and essentially says that he is a heretic and that his attempts at reformation will be doomed and he's cursed the country through his actions. She is supported by various prominent people, conservatives, notably John Fisher, the Bishop of Rochester, who later um, is executed by Henry for refusing the act of supremacy that makes Henry head of the Church of England. And uh, yes, you're, you're right. It does lead to a, an act which is against false prophecy. And prophecy is something that is very close to magic in early modern England, because prophecy isn't necessarily a religious activity. I think in the case of the Holy Maid of Kent, it does have strong religious overtones because she's a nun. But for many, prophecy is linked to figures like Merlin, to Mother Shipton, to a prophet called uh, Old Nixon. And these are secular prophets. You know, these are not biblical prophets or angels or, or religious figures, but these kind of legendary figures and you can put anything in their mouth. So if you say, oh, it's Merlin's prophecy, well, you can make up any number of prophecies that Merlin produced uh, in retrospect. So yeah, there is this tradition of magical prophecy, and it is a threat because prophecy is very subversive. It's a, it's a way of creating a, a counter-narrative to what the government's trying to put forward. If we can segue a little bit, prophecy, looking to the future. So what what are you working on right now? What where are you Where is your research focusing at the moment now that you have, you know, this book, both out and in paperback. So the two phases of being published sort of out there. What's uh, what's on the horizon for you? Uh, well, I'm working on a number of things. Um, one of the things that I'm working on at the moment is uh, I've actually moved my focus away from England to the, the Baltic. And I'm looking at the very interesting phenomenon of the survival of paganism in the Baltic to a very late date. So in what's now Lithuania, the, the, the survival of paganism right into the 15th and even into the 16th century. And I'm working on a translation of Latin texts written by largely Polish commentators who describe the pagan religion that was being practiced there. So that's, yes, a bit of a, a, a change of scene, but still very much 
staying with unusual beliefs and strange hinterlands of, of belief. And I also work on monastic history. So I am, yes, working on a, a history of a specific monastery, um, as I have before. I've, I've produced a number of books about monastic history. But yes, uh, various various projects in the in, in the offing and also a chapter on the history of magic for a, a forthcoming history of, of magic from from Bloomsbury uh, which will be a multi-volume series of books but I'm contributing a, a chapter on authorities and control of attempts to control magic in the in the 18th century that's really exciting that's oh, definitely gonna look out for those I think that that might cover all the questions that I have thank you so much for taking the time this has been a real this has been a real pleasure. Well, thank you. And actually, uh, before before you go, I typically ask a lot of the people that I interview on this on this program for a little sort of nugget if there's anything that they want to sort of leave listeners with as they as they kind of depart. And and I typically direct that towards people who identify more as practitioners as, uh, of magic or the occult or things like that. But if I mean, as a historian of magic, is there any sort of parting message that you? you'd like to to give people who are listening to this i suppose don't make assumptions about what magic is look at the sources look at the history magic is is often less easy to stereotype and characterize as we might think but if we look at the sources it's actually more interesting than we give it credit for so i i think sometimes people come to the idea of magic that they think they know what it is but magic is always something different from what you think it is. That's marvelous. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much to Francis Young for taking the time to chat. Uh, Be sure to check out his book, Magic as Political Crime in Medieval and Early Modern England. And be sure to check out his other fabulous scholarly work on folklore and monasticism and exorcisms. He's got a new book as of March 2020 coming out, Monasticism in Suffolk. So be sure to go out and grab that or stay in and grab that because, of course, I think most of us are are under some manner of voluntary quarantine, if not involuntary quarantine at the moment. Uh, So on to plague magic. Two caveats before we get going. Uh, One is that, you know, any plague magic you, you do, you should be doing in addition to following the standard health guidelines that are coming out of the CDC and the WHO and other similar health organizations, you know, washing your hands with soap for 20 seconds, because I guess the lipids in the soap do something to break up the viral envelope of the coronavirus. And, you know, we just have to do the work that we we can to, to distance ourselves from each other physically so that we can protect the most vulnerable people in our community, the immunocompromised, uh, the elderly, so that we can keep the spread of this of this contagion slow and make sure that we're not creating a situation where our hospitals and medical facilities are at or above capacity while this moves through the population. Um, but, you know, wash your hands for 20 seconds. Uh, it's not that difficult to do. There are a lot of pop songs with roughly 20-second choruses that you can use as a, as a reference point. Uh, the Scissor Sisters... Baby, come home to me. Shaka Khan's Tell Me Something Good. My Chemical Romance's Teenagers. You know, all these songs have roughly 20-second long choruses. So maybe, you know, find one you like, have it imprinted inside of you, and use that as a point 
of reference. The other caveat is that, you know, plague magic, it's a huge, the idea of a plague is very big and can refer to different sicknesses, cholera, bubonic plague, uh, in our case, I guess, an influenza. So some of these things might be sickness specific, so a thing to keep in mind while you're doing experimentation. And just another reason to follow standard health guidelines in addition to the magic that you are attempting or doing. Okay, actually, I lied. Third caveat, with any of these things that I point at you, I'm just throwing you things pretty fast so by all means if you're interested in exploring something do your own research early on in my research i was looking at the higromantia which is a good golden oldie for grimoires and it came across or i came across this thing that seemed absolutely perfect where it said here's a plant and if you pick it when pisces rules which is right now because we're we're in uh tis the season tis pisces season you know if you if you pick it if you eat it you're going to be protected from all sickness and i thought perfect here's a perfect bit of magic for us to try and then i looked into the plant and i was like oh uh contemporary research shows that this uh this will kill you it's a it's a carcinogen huh. so you know um uh actually here's a bit of advice don't eat birthwort don't do that because uh, you'll die probably um but you know all that to say with all of this stuff Definitely use what I give you as a jumping off point for your own research, but your research probably doesn't doesn't stop with what you hear on this or really any podcast. Give give every podcast a grain of salt, some more than others. With that being said, plague magic. One of the big themes we find in plague magic is the idea of vinegar as a disinfectant or as some kind of preservative of the self against plague sickness. The big story that sort of roots this lore is the idea of the vinegar of four thieves, the four thieves vinegar, the idea being either that this is a vinegar that four thieves used as they were looting the bodies of plague victims in Marseille, and they were able to use this vinegar to come out unscathed, or it was four thieves who were condemned to bury the bodies of the victims of a plague in Marseille, and similarly came out unscathed using some sort of vinegar concoction. And as a result, we've got a bunch of anti-plague vinegar recipes from different sources uh, from the last couple of centuries. So I'm just going to throw a bunch of these at you, you know, experiment, see what you think might work. But the basic premise seems to be you mix vinegar with some number of aromatics. So here's one from the British Medical Journal uh, from 1884. We have take the best vinegar and mix it with clarified juice of calendine, nutmegs, leaves and roots of avens, roots of elecampane, Roots of Angelica, Zedoari, Juniper Berries, Sage, Digest Two Days. It is a powerful thing both in preservation from and cure of the plague and other malign fevers. It clears the eyesight also to a wonder. No man that drank this medicine in the Great Plague of 1592 was infected with it or any other disease. Uh, we also have one from 1939 that has four thieves vinegar in particular as a potion that contained beech and roman wormwood rosemary sage mint rue lavender flowers calamus powder cinnamon cloves nutmeg and garlic the ingredients were then placed in a crock and red wine vinegar poured over it then left in the sun for several weeks and distilled off followed by the addition of camphor camphor seems to be one that that pops up a fair amount with this. We also have a recipe that got published in March 1985 from Scientific American that said that four thieves vinegar consisted of macerated garlic in wine. We have another one 
from the British Medical Journal that was published in 1865, and their recipe is acetic acid 900 grams, camphor in powder 5 grams, a crystallized phenic acid 100 grams. The combination of these three antiputrescents is said to be extremely useful and for hygienic purposes far superior to vinegar of four thieves as toilet vinegar was once called it has been used a good deal on board ship to keep the cabins of sick persons sweet we have another recipe here and this one is coming at us from 1765 from a book called the art of cookery by hannah glass and that is rue sage mint rosemary wormwood and lavender a handful of each infuse them together in a gallon of white wine vinegar put the whole into a stone pot closely covered up upon warm ashes for four days after which draw off or strain through fine flannel the liquid and put it into bottles well corked and into every quart bottle put a quarter of an ounce of camphor with this preparation wash your mouth rub your loins and your temples every day sniff a little up your nostrils when you go into the air and carry about you a bit of sponge dipped in the same in order to smell upon occasions especially when you are near any place or person that is infected recipes for a helpful vinegar maybe not strictly magic but a thing that i think especially if you want to try to empower it with some kind of conjuration could be a good basis for magical activities speaking of empowerment and conjuration another big move that people tend towards in plague magic is the use of plague saints and there are some that sort of come and go saint anastasia saint john of nepomuk the 14 holy helpers but the two really big ones who seem to pop up a lot are saint roche and saint sebastian saint roche uh, during his lifetime, according to legend, helped people who had the plague, treated people with the plague, until eventually he himself succumbed to the plague, and then he was miraculously cured of the plague with uh, God sending a dog to lick his buboes. So he's a big plague saint. The other is Saint Sebastian, who doesn't have necessarily a direct connection to the plague in his lifetime, but the idea that since he was shot with arrows in one of his martyrdoms, he had two famously, and arrows are linked to the plague symbolically since ancient times, which is also a reason why if you don't like using Christian figures, you might turn to someone like, say, Apollo, who's similarly linked to arrows and therefore linked to plague by that merit. Uh, that because St. Sebastian is linked to these arrows, he is another classic plague saint. And my understanding is part of the idea is that St. Sebastian will just take on the suffering of the plague for you. Like you're asking him in these novenas maybe to, to be the one to suffer in your stead. But once you have sort of a plague saint picked out, the trick is using them in some way, either in a conjuration or using some sort of saint-related object, a medal. There are St. Sebastian plague-specific uh, medallions that are essentially pins that they call the arrows of saint sebastian i've seen these referenced as being a medieval practice or possibly renaissance i i don't have any pictures of them to to give you a good visual description of what they look like because I, I actually don't know what my understanding is they are essentially just pins another thing one can do and this is an iberian practice the, that a friend turned me on to is you can make a dedicated rosary to a saint and use it to empower water for some kind of magical wash so the idea is you you take a piece of string and you do a rosary on the string tying knots 
every time that there would be a bead. So the idea is, you know, as you get to sort of like the ah men at the end of the of like a Hail Mary or, or an Our Father, you like would go ah close the knot and do the men or something along those lines so that the 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 prayer would sort of be trapped in the knot once you've done that to the point that you've made basically a rosary you then do eight novenas on it with a novena to the saint in this case probably saint sebastian or saint roche and you drop it into water and let it soak in the water infusing the water with the rosary or you leave it around the mouth of like a jug or a bottle and so as the water passes out of it it passes through the rosary and you would do this until basically the rosary has fallen apart in which case you'd leave it at a crossroads or at the gate of a church there is a lot of room for experimentation with this it's not really an established like dogmatic practice so you know fiddle around with this idea see what you can come up with um you're tapping into not just an iberian practice involving involving rosaries but also just a long history of using knots for magical healing and warding um you know in 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 northern magic there's this idea of troll nutar uh which is you know magic knots where you would use usually i think nine knots to ward off disease and this idea this connection between knots and magic and especially knots and healing magic is very old it's very widespread we have evidence that this was practiced in babylon and assyria apparently in in tablet nine in the british museum this is a, a cuneiform tablet there is a method for curing a headache by tying knots around cedar uh the the tablet says take cedar and plate a triple cord and tie twice seven knots and perform the incantation of eridu and bind the head of the sick man that the evil spirit the evil demon may stand aside and a kindly spirit a kindly genius be present and afterwards uh we often have versions of this where where the not has to be cast off somewhere maybe into the street as it's been reported happening in Assyria, a similar practice that comes out of Hungary, according to a 1962 article from the Journal of American Folklore, written by Bella Gunda, uh, Gypsy Medical Folklore in Hungary, is rags tied around sticks and the transference of the sickness to the rags and sticks, and then the transference of that sickness to whoever picks up those rags and sticks or touches them once they are uh, cast aside. So in this version, um, uh, dolls are made by rolling a rag around nine twigs, which are tied in a star formation. Uh, the medicine woman surrounds the sore mouth with the bewitching dolls and says, it, being the sickness, shall remain in the grass and the tree. After having done this, she spits to the right and the left three times and takes the dolls to a crossroads so that the mouth wounds may be caught by cattle or people passing the spot. On her way home, she must not look back. The most suitable day to carry out the witchcraft is Friday, and each of the dolls must be given a special name. The names are ones of relations, such as father, mother, son, daughter, grandmother, grandfather, godfather. It is believed that a family is formed by the nine dolls. But I've, I've seen at least one version of this where the cast-off knots 
rather than being left at a crossroads to be picked up by somebody, uh, should be thrown into running water so that they don't harm anyone once they are cast off, which actually kind of mirrors something I came across in the Golden Bow a long time ago, not a long time ago, probably in the last year, a practice of making a poppet to represent death and then carrying that poppet out of one's one's village and throwing it into a river while chanting death, we are taking death out of the village. So, you know, this idea of carrying the sickness away into something else. And actually this, this idea of knots being associated with magic is... I'm finding from my research very fundamental and very, very old. There are Talmudic sources that I guess refer to um, sorcerers as specifically those who blow on knots. And I've also come across this article from a 1950 issue of Western folklore by a guy named Cyrus L. Day, Knots and Knot Lore, where he makes a linguistic case for the centrality of knot tying to ancient ideas of magic, pointing out things like in Russian, one of the words for wizard means not tire. In Hebrew literature, I'm quoting now, uh, the charmer or enchanter is called hoberhaber, which means a man who ties uh, magic knots, magic is in parentheses. Babylonia is characterized in Isaiah 47.9 by the multitude of its sorceries and the great abundance of its enchantments, or literally translated according to Gad's by the great abundance of its knots. And in Egypt, um, the two signs, which mean either amulet or protection, are believed to represent a knot or a twisted cord. And actually looking at these hieroglyphs right now, I, you know, they do look very much like knots. And the sign for ankh, which means life, may also represent a knot. And the signs for ankh, which means sound, healthy, may represent a fowler's net. The meanings life and health could have been derived from signs representing knots and nets, since knots and nets were used as amulets, were supposed to give life and health. Other signs that represent knots or cords include the following. Um, okay, so anyway, knots and magic. Big connection there. Something worth exploring for sure. Staying with the idea of saints and religious magic for protection against the plague, there are a number of visual inscriptions that one can use protectively that are coming out of the sort of western religious tradition of plague magic one of these is the cross of saint zacharias which was given formal approval by the council of trent as a ward against plague and again this is like a visual thing you should try looking up a visual if you google it you will find it and uh there are a lot of depictions of this of this cross with saint roche and saint sebastian as well as saint john of nepomuk uh usually just straight chilling in the background like he's the one who's lying down for some reason but um, to give you a, an idea of what this looks like since we are using an audio medium here it is a cross with two horizontal bars and if you go down the vertical it is on the cross you have a cross z cross i cross b i cross z cross s a b cross z cross and then on the first horizontal the top horizontal you have dia with that i being shared with the first i or the vertical bar and then on the second horizontal bar you have h g f i b f r s with that i being shared again with the second i of the vertical bar so that's one visual protection agent you can use there's also one that i think was fairly common in germany which would be written or carved above the door of of a building and that is cross z cross d i a cross 
SBIZ cross SAB space ZHGF cross BFRS. And apparently, according to work published in 1709 by Gelesius de Cilia, this inscription contains the initial letters of various phrases that are taken from the Bible. So this is essentially a sort of shorthand, a shorthand protection object. We also have as protection objects from a sort of religious tradition or it's a western christian tradition this idea that you could take a piece of paper and leave it at your threshold or i think keep it on your person after having blessed it as a protection and so these pieces of paper that were called sort of conception belays would have a prayer to consecrate the paper and then you'd use the paper to sort of protect your person or to protect the threshold of your home and that Prayer is, I conjure thee, paper or parchment, thou which service the needs of humanity, service as the depository of God's wonderful deeds and holy laws, as also according to divine command, the marriage contract between Tobias and Sarah was written upon thee, the scriptures saying, they took paper and signed their marriage covenant. Through thee, O paper, hath also the devil been conquered by the angel. I adjure thee by God, the Lord of the universe, then do the sign of the cross, the Son, the sign of the cross, and the Holy Ghost, do the sign of the cross, who spreads out the heavens as a parchment on which he describes, as with divine characters, his magnificence, bless, then you do the sign of the cross, O God, sanctify, sign of the cross, this paper, that so it may frustrate the work of the devil." He who upon his person carries this paper, written with holy words, or affixes it to a house, shall be freed from the visitations of Satan through him who cometh to judge the quick and the dead. Let us pray. Mighty and resistless God, the God of vengeance, God of our fathers, who hast revealed through Moses and the prophets the books of thy ancient covenant and many secrets of thy kindness, and didst cause the gospel of thy son to be written by the evangelists and apostles, bless, sign of the cross, and sanctify, sign of the cross, this paper, that thy mercy may be made known unto whatsoever soul shall bear with him this sacred thing and these holy letters, and that all persecutions against him from the devil and by the storms of satanic witchcraft may be frustrated through christ our lord amen and then you sprinkle the paper with holy water so my primary source for these conception belays uh is victor rydberg's the magic of the middle ages and he doesn't say specifically in his 1879 uh, book, or at least the translation that I'm looking at is from 1879, as translated by August Hjalmar Edgren. Um, it isn't explicitly said whether anything is actually written on the piece of paper, though from context it sounds like you're writing out at least the first part of that conjuration and probably writing out the crosses as well. But what's fun about this, uh, this weapon that I guess was used against evil by the Carmelites is that it mentions Tobias, which references back, I think, to the book of uh, Tobit, at least according to to something I looked up. And, you know, that's nice, because that involves uh, the Archangel Raphael in his healing role, or their healing role. I don't know, do we gender angels? Let's say they, just to be safe. Anyway, Archangel Raphael, who also is another good healing deity that you can use uh, in a plague-type scenario. And actually, um, what I've been seeing a lot... So Raphael is associated with the planet Mercury, which makes sense because, you know, Mercury is the big sort of medical healing planet in Western in Western occultism. But um, this seems like a good moment to bring up that 
if you want to throw different spirits into these into these forms, give it a try. Why not? The worst that could happen is that it wouldn't work and you make something metaphysical very angry at you, which actually sounds kind of bad. But, you know, give it some thought at least. But if you're making these substitutions, you might want to do them on a planetary basis. Uh, a lot of the spirits involved in these sorts of things seem to be solar. Uh, for example, you know, arrows are i think the chief reason why saint sebastian is associated with plague but arrows also link him to apollo who is a solar deity saint michael is also associated with the end of plagues i think there's a story from rome uh maybe in the year 460 a.d where at the end of a plague uh the archangel michael is seen as was seen in a vision putting his sword back in his scabbard so you know maybe go with something solar as well uh there's also of course the greek god of medicine you might want to give a try if you're doing uh alternative deities for these formularies uh or formulas um i believe his name is asclepius asclepius it's one of those ones that are hard that i have trouble saying out loud asclepios asclepius asclepius right anybody asclepius yeah yeah okay fine another road you can take is to try to make some kind of poppet to protect yourself so this is a very old idea that goes as far back as assyria or egypt but we 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 get this from at least my source for this is the work of christopher a ferone uh, binding and burying the forces of evil the defensive use of voodoo dolls in ancient uh greece but you have basically this idea that you could in a situation where you didn't know who was attacking someone with witchcraft or where someone was sort of the victim of a sickness that might be caused by some sort of demon or something like that what you would do is you would essentially make a a poppet for the person of any potential doer of harm so the idea is you would make a a, a female poppet and a male poppet you would write the names of the victim of the sickness on the left hips of these poppets and you would put some of the victim's hair in the poppet so in this in this case you would sort of use yourself or anyone you were trying to protect you'd use their names you'd use their hair and you would make these images of wax or tallow or dough or clay and you'd write the names on the left hips and then you would bind the hands behind them and you would say in some sort of prayer these are the images of my adversary my 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 persecutor my prosecutor and then you would add your hair to their head and clothe them in your hair and you would bind them together in a skein and put them in a half silla container and bury them in the ground so you would sort of twist their arms behind their backs you would bind their feet with string and then you would bury them and versions of this would be done for individuals but also you have some some indication that in egypt this would be done on a daily basis as a sort of binding to protect the entire country as a whole and in these instances they would be binding statues of Ares or of Actaeon and so I don't know if maybe you could try to do this in some sort of civic way and maybe adapt it for I don't know maybe binding Saturn or Pluto since uh, I think there are a fair amount of people suggesting that this this current pestilence might have something to do with the Saturn and Pluto conjunction cycle. This idea of treating um, pestilence as a kind of demonic fever also ties into a charm that I found against fever in a book of Scandinavian folk belief and legend. Uh, and this 
charm is the thing you say against fever where you personified the fever as 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 demonic by saying nine brothers were they over land road they they all met on a mill dam they met no other man than good saint john saint john the willow wound he all nine bound they promised god and saint john they would not ride neither woman nor man nor this man so these 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 uh, nine demonic brothers are sort of the cause of the fever, and in the charm you are you are exercising them through the power of St. John, or having St. John exercise them. And this is derived from a 15th century manuscript. There are other sort of visual charms where you write something on a sheet of paper and you keep it on you. Um, this includes one that was used against camp fever, which I guess is a way of referring to typhus, and you would write Abaxa Catabax, so A-B-A-X-A space C-A-T-A-B-A-X, and you would just write that a bunch of times, removing the last letter every time. So you have Abaxa Catabax twice, and then Abaxa Cataba and then a baxa catab, and then a baxa kata, and then a baxa cat, and then a baxa ka, and a baxa s, and a baxa, a bax, abba, ab, uh. And you'd carry that either hung around your neck or, or sewn, I guess, into your clothes. And that comes to us courtesy of Carlton F. Brown's version of Johann Georg Homann's the long hidden friend which i guess is an alternative translation of the long lost friend uh this appeared in a 1904 issue of the journal of american folklore though that bit about uh camp fever and what that actually is is something i gleaned from the cunning man's handbook by jim baker which is also the source of a number of other charms i'm about to do from albertus magnus for a fever suspend upon a friday and this is coming from albertus magnus suspend upon a friday a letter containing the names set forth below between the hours of eight and nine upon the patient's neck in the following manner fold together and tie it in grayish red cloth which must be unbleached and pierced through the cloth and the letter three holes draw red thread through them while calling the three holiest names suspend the same around the neck of the patient and let it remain 11 days after taking it off burn it before the lapse of one hour uh and and the thing that you write is h-b-r-h-c-h-t-h-b-r-h and then you do the same move again where under that you write the same line of letters omitting the last letter and then you keep doing that until you work your way all the way down to just the final h from a book by hewitt from 1900 which is to say sarah hewitt's nummets and crummets though i am getting it this time out of again jim baker's the practice of english folk magic 1550 to 1900 the cunning man's handbook an excellent book and also very big worth getting we have to cure a fever right on parchment the following and bind it over the heart of the patient quote in the name of saint exerperus and saint honorius fall fever spring fever quartian quintain ego super ego consumatum est while fixing this charm to the patient repeat three potters and three aves the patient will recover after wearing this charm nine days uh we also have from albertus magnus for a fever nut tree i come unto thee take the 77 fevers from me i will persist therein t t t this must be written upon a scrap of paper and with the same 
He go to a nut tree ere the sun rises, cut a piece of the bark, insert the paper under it, recite the above sentence three times, and put the bark in its place again so that it may grow together. Uh, so a lot of the things I've also found, you know, they, they include ingredients that are hard to come by, scorpions, etc. So I'm, I'm not going to lean too heavily into those, but here's one that um, I honestly don't think you should do because it seems like animal cruelty. But I'm just going to throw it out there for you. Um, it's from 1548 from France, uh, from the Abditus Rerum Causis Libra Divo, because, you know, who knows? Maybe you can find a good substitute. Uh, but, torn out before sunrise, the eyes of a frog that you will throw back alive into the water will repel fever once you have tied them to your person. So, I don't know. Find something like that that is not, in fact, the eyes of the frog and give it a try. We also have here a general protection altar that might be of use for you, uh, and this is coming from Hoodoo Shrines and Altars, Sacred Spaces in Conjure and Root Work uh, by Miss Phoenix Lafay and this is a home protection mirror altar to stop evil before it enters hang a prepared mirror in an entrance hall or foyer facing the front door a flat manila envelope is taped to the back of the mirror inside are a copy of the 91st psalm the names of family members herbs and roots like rue angelica mint and double shoestring and an image of jesus christ placed so that it faces outward toward the doorway so you know something to keep the home safe there uh the grimoire verum which is a very uh popular grimoire especially among people that i interview on this show i feel like has a prayer to preserve you from all danger and that prayer goes as follows agios lord invisible deliver me from death i humbly beseech you i conjure you through your name Ostan, deign to help me, a poor sinner, that I may have refuge in you, then do the sign of the cross, and say, Tetragrammaton, you are the king of kings, God of the Father, you are the Lord of lords, in you alone I entrust myself, you who governs and regulates the things of heaven and earth, I conjure you to have compassion and mercy on me, a sinner, I, then you say your name, beseech you again to deliver me from all my enemies, Gabon, Suth, and Sutan, and have mercy on me in the name of the Father, do the Son of the Cross, and the Son, do the Son of the Cross, and the Holy Spirit, so be it. The first name of God is Othon, the second is Uhan, and when God said, let there be, there was light, the third is Lofiaz, do the Son of the Cross, in the name of the Lord, and of the Invisible Trinity, do the Son of the Cross, and Tassiton, to the sign of the cross, Isturinus, Grin, Adonai, save me, Hedes and El, and Dothios, Adonai, and so be it. Write this prayer on virgin parchment on any day before sunrise, and the crosses must be written with your blood. Draw from the little finger of your left hand after incensing and perfuming it, carry it with veneration, and you will be preserved from every danger. So there's a bunch of plague stuff for you to try. Uh, I'll keep uh, putting out stuff with every episode, and, you know, these are things to, to experiment with in addition to following the standard CDC WHO guidelines. By all means, let's, let's all do best safe practices. And, you know, even if I'm doing this every episode, keep sending in listener questions. I'm always excited to address those. And by all means, 
also if you if you try these like you know, let me know how it goes huh uh before we close out the show i feel like i should explicitly mention some sources that i used but did not necessarily name in a findable way in addition to the things that i i i, I mentioned by name there's also encyclopedia of religion and ethics volume 7 edited by james hastings john alexander selby and lewis herbert gray i also made use of nigel Pennock's pagan magic of the northern tradition uh a book on Scandinavian folk belief and legend that was edited by Raymond Kvideland and Henning K. Semsdorf, as well as traditional magic spells for protection and healing by Claude Lecto. Claude Lecto's work is fantastic, really worth checking out at some point. Some final notes, uh, listening back on the episode, I think I say with that Hungarian doll spell that it would be transferred to people who touch it or or pick up the doll afterwards the the looking back at it the way it's worded in the article about it it does seem like it's just a question of coming in within proximity to it which is very scary uh but just a better reason to throw it into running water or maybe if you give it a try maybe just burn it but i would admonish you of course to in getting rid of it don't put it in say someone's well water and don't put it somewhere where someone's likely to find it because you don't want this to spread it is a pandemic uh the other thing i think i mentioned that saint michael is associated with the end of plagues really um the archangel michael is i think a big clearing of sickness deity or spirit in general just getting rid of sickness protecting from sickness uh i think this is something that is associated with solar deities in general just no sickness unsickness clearing sickness etc so you know solar deities maybe worth working with in this sort of thing this has been witch hassle thank you so much to frank thank you so much to francis young submit your questions support us on patreon our theme music is performed by sebastian baverstam and was recorded by edward lee good luck with the work ahead thank you for joining us i hope you're having fun in quarantine like i am Toodaloo.